Chapter 2 Ornithopter Tokasia did not send the boys back with Fly that trip, or for any other trip to Penrigan for the next six summers. Urza came to terms with Ricklau, and Mishra was more careful about sitting on others' bunks. Loran went back to Penrigan and stayed away for five years. Fly wore out the new oxen and tried to buy one of Tokasia's onulets, to no avail. Tokasia continued to dig and to bring up the two boys put into her care. At first, Tokasia thought of Urza and Mishra as two parts of a single entity. Her inclination was reinforced by the way the two looked at each other before answering a question. Yet they were very different people, and the desert brought up different parts of their personalities. Urza became more studious, devouring every scrap of information that Tokasia had gathered on the Thran. He pored over the roster of artifacts from previous seasons, and even the scrap heaps of material that had been discarded. In this fashion, he found several pieces that belonged with later discoveries, but had been discarded at the time. Urza, Tokasia quickly discovered, was intrigued by the manner in which things worked. At 12, he took apart the front limbs of one of the onulets, reassembling it only after Tokasia threatened dire consequences. He and Mishra rebuilt the beast overnight, and their impromptu redesign stopped the lurching problem the machine had previously experienced. The elder brother grew lean and weary in the hot sun. His hair bleached to a straw-colored blonde, and he now gathered it in a ponytail across the back of his neck. His knowledge was encyclopedic, and his insights keen. Mishra bloomed in the dry desert air as well. While Urza burrowed through the tattered scrolls and maps, Mishra learned to dig, to sift, and excavate. The younger brother spent more time out in the field than did his sibling. He climbed among the exposed rock faces and dry washes. Soon, he could look at a proposed excavation site and hazard a guess on how deep the excavators would have to go before striking the Thran level of artifacts. More often than not, his guess proved right. Tokasia noticed that Mishra spent more time with the other students than did his brother and with the mall's diggers as well. After supper, while Urza hunched over a ligature of some skeletal artifact, Mishra was to be found at the diggers' camp, listening to the legends of the Falaji peoples. There were tales of raids, heroes, and desert genies, of great cities captured in bottles, and hapless souls transformed into donkeys. Mishra learned of the Thran as the desert people knew them, a race of demigods who would use their artifacts to create wonderful, terrible cities. Tokasia suspected that the diggers let Mishra sample their nabis, the powerful fermented wine spiced with cinnamon favored by the Falaji, but she said nothing. It seemed good to her that Mishra had moved from beneath his brother's protective wing. Urza, for his part, seemed to not notice that his brother spent more time with the others, so wrapped up was the elder child in his studies. The work in the desert toughened Mishra. He was more muscular, the result of long hours at the dig sites, and his flesh had a deep worker's tan. His dark hair trailed after him like a banner, ornately braided in the manner of the desert. He had wider shoulders and a stauncher frame than his elder brother, and can now handle himself in any scrap without Urza's help. Both boys were tireless workers, and Tokasia saw why Bly had tried to keep them, but something more than work bound them to her. Each of the brothers had an enthusiasm for his task that was contagious. Tokasia felt no need to talk to them as children, rather she spoke to them as trusted adults, and they returned her trust. Soon the pair were considered as vital and permanent a part of the encampment as Tokasia herself. Within two years, the young nobles arriving from Penrigan were the same age as Urza and Mishra, and the brothers already knew the lay of the land, remembering their own experiences the pair always sought out the prospective bullies among the group and made it clear that no persecution of the smaller students would be permitted. Within another two years, the brothers were considered the de facto leaders of the student contingent, allowing Tokasia more time for her own examination of artifacts and their power stones. In the fall of the second year, word reached the camp via Bly's caravan that Urza and Mishra's father had passed on after a long illness. The word was in a terse note, quickly penned from the boy's stepmother. The missive said nothing about inheritance and Tokasia suspected no mention would ever be made. She gave Urza the news first. 
He was working beneath Tokatsu's tarp, clearing the dust from a device found earlier that day, driven by a coiled spring. Tokatsu suspected it was merely a clock mechanism, but the young man had found carvings along the length of the spring itself, carvings that seemed to have a relationship to known Thran glyphs. When she told him of his father, Urza set his tools down and stared at the inlaid pearl top for a long moment. He rubbed his eyes and thanked Tokatsu for the information, then picked up his tools again, suddenly intent on the device. Misha responded very differently. When Tokashi gave him the news, he fled the dig site altogether, climbing up the side of the rocky tour above Tokashi's encampment. The old scholar thought to go after him, but Amal counseled against it. Misha needed to work out his feelings on his own, the Palaji said. Still, after dinner, Tokashi saw Urza climbing the outcropping, and the brothers sat up there a long time, watching the glimmer moon rise over the desert. Neither brother mentioned the incident afterward, and Tokashi wondered what they had said to each other on the side of that rocky tour. In the spring of the sixth year of the boy's arrival, Lorraine returned, this time as an official representative of her house instead of as a mere student. She had grown as well, and was now a high-born lady with, Bly informed Tokasia with a wink and an unsubtle nudge, a string of suitors designed both her hand and her family's monies. Officially, Lorraine was to survey the encampment for its recent accomplishments and to recommend if her family should increase the sponsorship of Tokasia's work. In reality, that decision could have been made back in Penrigan. A growing number of young leaders of the various families had spent at least one year working for Tokasia, and fond memories now translated into hard currency. The Argivian crown did not care for Tokasia's work, the archaeologists knew, but the Argivian crown was weak and treated the matter as it treated everything else it did not care for. It ignored the issue. Lorraine made the long and difficult journey out to the encampment primarily to see Tokasia again, and Tokasia knew it. Most of the high manners and softness disappeared by the end of the first evening, and by noon of the second day, Lorraine was prowling alongside Tokasia as she moved from excavation to excavation. Tokasia had something to show Lorraine, a story for her to carry back to the other former students in the Argivian capital. There had been a sudden downpour the month before, a hard-hitting desert rain that had threatened several of the dig sites. Rahud, one of Amal's diggers, had heard from a nomadic family member that the rain had hit even harder farther to the north and flooded out an old dry wash, revealing what looked like a Thran machine. Rahud told Misha, Misha reported to Tokasia, and within a day, the group had met on a small expedition north. It was a device they found, and one definitely of Thran creation. It looked at first like some sort of sailing craft, an impossibility in the desert. Long poles of ancient candlewood jutted from the exposed bank, to which had been attached what looked like a sailing rig. Urza examined it, and then, to Takasia's amazement, confidently declared it to be a flying craft, something unseen in terrestrial skies, save only in the oldest of stories. For the next week, the camp activity moved to the new site, seeking to pry loose the bird-like flying machine and haul it back to the main encampment. The diggers had to work quickly to avoid attention of less friendly desert phalagi, as well as the predatory sand-colored rocks. The students were pressed into duty hauling dirt and clearing debris, and Urza and Misha camped on the site to guard the new find. It only took a few days to pry the device free of the surrounding soil and rock, and Urza was proven right. What Tokasia had thought of as sails were in fact wings. The construction did seem fashioned like a bird, and Tokasia dubbed it an ornithopter. Both wings were intact, though the tail assembly had been crushed. A small maze of wires and tubes at the heart of the craft cradled a now-shattered power stem. They got the ornithopter back to the camp two days before Lorraine's arrival, and Tokasia was glad to see the look on the young noblewoman's face when she saw the tattered remains. To any Argivian, it was a mess of fractured poles, smashed metal, and scraps of ancient fabric. But to any former student of Tokasia, it was a treasure. To see a large device after spending a summer trying to pry fragments of the rock with a small brush made the archaeologists and her students indescribably happy. Tokasia also noticed that with the passage of time, 
Lorraine also grew more sure of herself. She no longer hesitated to speak, nor did she spend all of her time with her old mentor. For the first few days, she hovered over Urza, who had removed the crystal housing from the ornithopter and was busy disassembling and cleaning the small device. Then, without any warning, she suddenly switched her time and attention to Mishra, who was rebuilding the larger framework of the craft itself. Tokasi did not know what, if anything, had happened to make Lorraine change her interest. Neither young man ever mentioned her in the scholar's presence. The young woman returned to Penrigan with promises of support for Takasia and an order for light sailcloth, and the brothers returned to their work. Mishra had rebuilt the ornithopter's framework, but the nature of the tail assembly defied him. Almost by unspoken agreement, Urza took over the reconstruction of the glider, discovering what wires went where and how they would function in flight. It was Urza who discovered that the sail-like wings had to be ribbed with thin sheets of candlewood in order to maintain their form in flight. For his part, Mishra confirmed that by bringing slender boughs of snap wing ribs back from the dig along with strands of frayed wire. Urza saw that the wire was better for controlling the shape of the wings than mere rope, and another order was placed with fly. The two young men spent hours together poring over the design, trying to determine how the tail assembly would function. In all, it took eight months for the ornithopter to be rebuilt. The key was the box of wires and discs that served as the craft's engine. Urza, Mishra, and even Tokasi did not know exactly how the small engine could power the large ornithopter. They only knew that it did. Urza used the small wheat crystal that belonged to the Su Chi to power the device. It was the last day of the year, Mishra's birthday, when the craft was ready at last. The day was surprisingly warm, and a soft wind blew from the desert. There was some debate over who would get the honor, and the danger, of the first test flight. I should do it said Urza. After all, I understand the workings of the power crystal cradle. I should do it, countered Mishra. The flight levers control in the wings are mulish, and they need a strong hand to keep them in line. I'm lighter, said Urza. I'm stronger, snapped Mishra. I am capable of holding levers in place, said Urza. And I understand the power crystals as well as you do, added Mishra quickly. I am the elder, said Urza smugly. And it's my birthday shouted Mishra, the blood rising to his face. So we are equal. Takasi looked at the two young men and let out a deep sigh. Such disagreements were rare, but were severe enough to trouble her. At last, she said, If you cannot decide, then I will have to risk my ancient bones in this device. The two young men stared at Takasi, then looked at each other. Each simultaneously pointed to the other and said, He should fly it. In the end, they flipped a coin. Urza won and Mishra did a passable job of containing his disappointment as the last of the preparations were made. A wide-level place had been cleared outside the stockade gates for the craft. The blonde young man climbed into the housing at the front of the ornithopter and slowly depressed the two main levers, engaging the arcane crystal within the maze of gears and wheels that he had lovingly rebuilt over the past months. The entire craft tumbled as the last of the slack and the wires were taken up and the wings accordioned out in the great pair of sails. The wings beat downward, once, twice, and then a third time. The ornithopter gave a small hop on the third beat, and Tokasia saw Mishra start as well. The younger boy said nothing. His eyes seemed transfixed by the sight, and his hands were clenched. Tokasia wondered if he was worried for his brother, or worried that his brother would damage the machine before he had a chance to try it. The device took another short hop, then another, larger leap. Just from the heavy beating wings blew in all directions, and the students retreated, covering their eyes and mouths from the swirling sand. One last leap, and this time, the ornithopter did not come back down. It was aloft, its wings straining against the warm air. Tokasia and the other students could hear the wire singing from the strain as a small craft, like a fledging rock leaving the nest, leapt into the air. The ornithopter climbed into the sky, 
and there was a sharp clatter as Urza threw the locking mechanism into place, fixing the wings into a solid, gliding surface. Urza was aloft for 10 minutes. He circled the encampment twice, and there was suddenly a 10 second when the craft suddenly dropped 10 feet, but it quickly climbed again. Urza circled one last time, then set the ornithopter back down on the pad of level sand. The wings unlocked and beat as he landed. The candlewood supports groaned, but held the craft upright. Hit some colder air, he said briefly to Takasia. Apparently that had some effect on its ability to keep aloft. Let me try, said Mishra. Urza did not move away from the device. We should check all the couplings for wear, he observed, still speaking to Takasia. And the stretch for fractures, not to mention the integrity of the power crystal. Mishra looked at Tokasia, his face clouded. Urza, said Tokasia softly, let your brother use the ornithopter. Urza opened his mouth to argue, then looked at his brother and silently stepped aside. Mishra piled into the flying device. Urza leaned into the housing. The right lever sticks, so you'll have to muscle it, he said. Mishra only grinned and shouted. Stand away. He flung both levers into place, engaging the wings. Urza backpedaled quickly out of the way of the huge, beating wings. Whatever sand had not been chased away before now was spun in a cyclone of wind. The ornithopter went almost straight up in a single bounce. The entire encampment could hear the sharp creaking of the candlewood struts and the high-pitched whine of the wires passing through metal loops and pulleys. Urza grimaced as if the sound physically pained him. It would have been better had we checked out the craft before flying it again, he said to Takasia through gritted teeth. Better, but not wiser, returned the old scholar. Misha climbed a hundred feet, locked the wings, then forced the craft into a swooping dive over the encampment. Sheep and goats in their pens below let out frightened bleats as the ornithopter passed only a few feet above them. Misha pulled back on the levers and re-engaged the wings, and the aircraft climbed again. Do you think the craft needs a lighter pilot now? said Tokasia. Urza shrugged. Actually, I think there's enough pull in the wings to take three or four people aloft at once if we expand the housing. So the argument that you should have flown it because your Elijah was disproved, pressed the scholar, smiling as she spoke. Urza winced, but said nothing. Misha circled the encampment twice, as Urza had before. Tokasi imagined that the lad was searching for the same spot of cold air so he could hick off the craft as had his brother. She did notice that while Urza had concentrated on keeping the craft level, Misha continually swooped and dove, banking in one direction, then the other. Then Misha flew over the camp once more and headed the craft westward into the deep desert. The form of the ornithopter became a blur, then a speck on the horizon. Tokasia and Urza looked at each other. Perhaps one of the steering wires broke, offered Tokasia. Or the little fool wanted to see how far he could go, Urza grumbled, rushing for the rocky tour behind them to get a better view. Urza made it only halfway up the hill when the sound of wings cutting through the warm air heralded Misha's return. The younger brother circled the camp twice and then landed just beyond the stockade gates. By the time Misha had touched down, Urza was waiting, his face as stern as stone. What do you think you were doing? He shouted as Misha climbed out of the housing. Bet enough that you probably overstressed the poise with your diving about, but to fly out of sight of the camp, you might have been attacked by rocks. If you had crashed in the desert, we might not have found you. Misha did not seem to be listening. Instead, he said, I saw the drawings. Didn't you? Urza was brought up short and looked at his brother, puzzled. The dark-haired brother turned into Kasia. Out in the desert, there are drawings. Mounds of dark earth against the lighter surrounding sand. We've passed them before on foot but never noticed. But from above, you could see that they're pictures. There are dragons, genies, rocks, even minotaurs. He turned to his brother. You saw them, didn't you? 
Urza blinked at his brother. Then more cautiously, he replied, I was more worried about the performance of the craft. Misha did not bother to listen. They surround a large hillock. I'll bet if we check that out, we find it some sort of old threat encampment. It could be some Falaji holy place, stated Urza, but Misha shook his head. No. He was empathetic. There's nothing in the old tales about the Falaji settlements in this immediate area. I think it's Thran, and I think we should investigate it. We should investigate the damage the flights did to the ornithopter, said Urza, already prowling along the wings, pulling at the sailcloth and running his hands along the struts. Tokasi spread her hands in a gesture that encompassed both brothers. We should celebrate, she said. There will be enough time to do everything else in the morning. That night, students and diggers built a great bonfire in the camp and gathered around the rising flame. There was an air of excitement among the students. The young nobles had new tales to take back to Argive. They had been present when Urza took the first flight and when Mishra found the great drawings in the desert. After long months of backbreaking work in shallow trenches and detailed cleaning of long dead beats of metal, here at last was something to be proud of. There were songs, and then the bees flowed. Rahad tried to teach several of the noble boys a traditional Falaji dance. The boys had no concept of the dance's rhythm, but since it involved waving pointed sticks, they joined in with the spirit of adventure. Misha told and retold the story of his flight, and Tokasi knew that every young man and woman in the encampment would be clamoring for the opportunity to fly in the near future. Urza remained at the edge of the campfire, neither dancing, nor drinking, nor talking. Tokasi walked over to him. You enjoying yourself? Well enough, replied the youth, but I'm thinking we should check the rigging for anywhere and tear, and if you want to put a larger housing... Tomorrow, said the old woman. You're young enough for a lot of tomorrows. Enjoy yourself this evening. I enjoy working on the devices, said Urza, watching his brother across the fire. The younger boy was surrounded by students as well as a few of the diggers. It seemed to Takashi that his story grew longer and more exciting with each telling. There are other enjoyments, said Tokasia, following Urza's gaze. Your brother seems to have discovered that. The two were silent in the flickering flame light for a moment. Then Urza said, I had nothing against Mishra taking his flight. I never said you did returned Tokasia. It's just that there is stress on any object that is put to the test for the first time, continued the older brother. We should have done a full check before letting him go aloft. Of course, said Tokasia in a level tone. His own recklessness aside, he could have been hurt, said Urza. Yes, Tokasia paused. But tell that to a young man who wants to be his brother's equal. I was only being prudent. And would you have been so prudent if you had lost the toss? asked Tokasia. Urza did not answer, but stood watching his brother across the flames.